Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sure and steady anchor that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for giving him to us. We praise you for being a God who loves us and therefore would give your son to us. We praise you, Father, that all these things are true, that we have an eternal hope in the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that our time in the word today would give us all the more certainty that that is the truth. That as some of us are encountering storms, other, others of us joys, that we would see Jesus is, is exactly what we need. And that we would find in the Word this morning encouragement from you to cling to the Lord Jesus until you call us home. We pray for your help as we study the Word. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. This morning we'll be considering verses 1 through 10. So as you find your place there, if you would stand with me and we'll read these verses. Hebrews 7 beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You may be seated. It's been said many times that if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. You teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. I would contend that a, that a good teacher does both. He gives you fish. And teaches you to fish. As I think about the great teachers that I've had over the years throughout my life, they've done both of those things. I, I, I would suggest to you that if you think about it, your best teachers did the same thing. I've got in my office 
a framed quote from one of my teachers. It's one of the fish that he gave me. He happens to be one of my favorite teachers, both because of quotes like that one, fish that he gave me, and he taught me to fish. He, he taught me to do the things that he does. That's what a great teacher does. And the author of Hebrews is a master teacher. As he's teaching, he is multitasking in a sense. The first, he's, he's explaining the meaning of Old Testament Scripture with an eye toward its immediate application. And that immediate application we've seen over and over is cling to Christ and don't fall away. At the same time, he's implicitly showing us how to interpret the Scriptures ourselves. And that he expects us to do this is clear from the warning that he gave in chapter 5 where he said, you should be able to easily handle this material by now, but you can't because you've become lazy of ears. Those of you who were, who were here when we were in chapter 5, you remember that. And so even as he's showing us what the Scriptures say and leading us to cling to Christ, he's also showing us how to interpret the Bible. The author is giving us a fish and he is teaching us to fish. He, he, he is both giving us a fish and teaching us to fish. Now, the former is important because we need to eat right now. The latter is important because maintaining a high view of Christ through our intake of the Scriptures is one of the most important disciplines in the Christian life. Without it, we will starve. Or to use an earlier metaphor in Hebrews, we will drift away. Now, the surface intent of of the author's message here in early chapter 7 is to explain the significance of Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood. The significance of that priesthood is that it's, it means that Jesus' priesthood is greater than Levi's. So as, as, we, as we gather this fish that the author is giving to us this morning, we're going to add to our list of reasons to cling to the Lord Jesus. So we're going to walk out of here this morning with just an, another reason. Two reasons, we might say, to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ and not drift away. In addition, we're going to find that reading the Bible the way the author does shows Christ to be exalted pervasively throughout the canon of Scripture. And both of these things are things that we need. We need a fish and we need to know how to fish. We need Christ to be exalted by this teacher in this text, and we need to know how to read the Scriptures that Christ might be exalted every time we open the Bible, that He might be exalted in our attention, affections, and allegiance. Now, what does the author have to teach us about Jesus' priesthood? Well, first of all, he teaches us that Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood is eternal. Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood is is eternal. So if you just glance down at verses 1 through 3 again, our, our translations, our English translations, helpfully break up this very long sentence into several smaller sentences. But, but we should know that this is actually one sentence, and if, if, we, if we clear away all the, the phrases that are, that are added on to the main clause, and we leave just the main clause, the, that one sentence underlying this, this whole big long thing in verses 1 through 3 is this. This Melchizedek, remains a priest for all time. That's what he's trying to impart to us. The main thing he's trying to impart to us in verses 1-3. through three. This Melchizedek remains a priest for all time. Now how does he arrive at that conclusion? Well, he's going back to Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14, that narrative was read for us first thing this morning by Pastor Rick. 
And we'll not go through all of that again, but just know that that's the source for this information that he's putting in our text this morning. Know also that in all of the Old Testament, and if you look at your Bible and you divide it into about two-thirds, the first two-thirds, close to two-thirds, is going to be the Old Testament. So in two-thirds of the whole Bible, Melchizedek is mentioned twice, only twice. He's mentioned in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. You may remember that the author has quoted Psalm 110 numerous times as we've been walking through Hebrews, the last of which was in chapter 5, where he began to teach us that this, this Jesus is a Davidic, that is, he's a king, priest. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And, and so he, he's showing to us now that, that, that if Jesus is a king like David and a priest like Melchizedek, then Melchizedek must prefigure Christ the way that David is, did. That is, there must be ways that Melchizedek resembled the coming Messiah. And so it seems that the author of Hebrews, he reads Psalm 110, which he's already quoted for us. He reads Psalm 110 and thinks, well, there must be some important stuff in Genesis 14 indicating how Melchizedek prefigures Jesus. And so he goes to Genesis 14 and he starts rummaging around. And we have here in this chapter a summary of his conclusions. Now verse 1 through the first part of verse 2 is just information that comes right off the surface of the page in Genesis 14. Look there with me again. Hebrews 7.1 For this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. That verse and a half is, is almost like what we do at the beginning of every sermon. We read the sermon text, and then we spend a great deal of time talking about what that text means. That's kind of what the author is doing here. He's putting in front of us pertinent details from Genesis 14, and beginning in the second half, or verse 2, he begins to explain what Genesis 14 means. It's important for us to follow the logic here as he explains to us what Genesis 14 means. It's important for us to follow the logic behind his interpretation because he expects us to interpret the Scriptures the way that he does. How do we know that? Well, one reason is somewhat obvious. We have here an inspired interpretation, which is to say that we have the Holy Spirit saying through this author, this is the right way to understand Genesis 14. The Holy Spirit is telling us this is the right way to interpret. So, so I just ask you, who else are we going to go to to learn how to interpret the Bible? It seems to me that the Holy Spirit who wrote the scripture, Scriptures should be a great teacher about how to interpret what he's written. A second reason that we should interpret the way the author does is that the author assumes that the readers, upon seeing how he interprets this text, they're, they're going to, to go back to Genesis 14 and they're going to say, oh yes, I see that. And so, and so I really do need to hold fast to Christ. Going back to the Old Covenant would be foolish and wrong. You see, if, if the author did not use good, and here's the key word, repeatable principles of interpretation, he would be handing these recipients a reason to walk away from the faith. And if, you, and if you'll remember, these folks, they're already tempted to shrink back from faithful discipleship. 
That is, in, in some measure, they are already in doubt. And if this look at the Old Testament Scriptures with the author of Hebrews makes no sense to them, and they conclude, no, that interpretation doesn't make good sense at all of Genesis 14, well, then they won't have any reason to believe the exhortation that he's giving them here in Hebrews. Because he's making a case that they should cling to Christ and he needs to use clear evidence in order to make that case. In other words, he needs to interpret in ways that anybody could look at Genesis 14 in the context of the rest of the Old Testament and say, yeah, he's right about this. And that's another reason for me to hold fast to Christ. A third reason that we should interpret the way that he does is that back in chapter 5, as I've already mentioned, he, he rebuked them for not being able to understand all of this stuff already. You remember that? He, he said, by this time, you should be teachers. And he was talking about this Melchizedek stuff. Mature readers, he's saying, mature readers and interpreters of the Bible should come to the same conclusions that I have, so says the author of Hebrews. So, don't be immature, he exhorts them in the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. This whole line of reasoning that he makes here assumes that his interpretation is not rocket science. And so as we consider what he says in these texts, let us do two things. First of, us, first of all, let's understand that he's interpreting correctly. And second, if we don't interpret the way that he does... We need to press harder into the study of the Scriptures to learn how he interprets the Scripture and how the other biblical authors interpret Scripture. We learn to interpret by watching them closely and how they interpret. Now, first of all, as he begins to interpret Genesis 14, he notes the meaning of Melchizedek's name. So look at the rest of verse 2. 7-2, he is first, by translation of his, of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, why would the author translate Melchizedek's name and, and, and his title for us? There's a couple of reasons why he would do that. First of all, names mean things in the Bible. Do you notice this? This happens over and over in the Scriptures. Frequently, a person's name gives an indication of their character or their mission or how we should view them as we read the narrative in which we find their name. One blessed example is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, which reads, You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Jesus looks and sounds like the Hebrew word for salvation. In fact, if you, if you were to read the Old Testament in Hebrew, you would think of Jesus involuntarily. You would think of Jesus every time you saw the Hebrew word save or salvation. That's just one example. I, I could give many more. We should be in the habit then of paying attention to people's names in Scripture, finding out what those names mean. Very often, their names are significant. The author of Hebrews knows this, and so he points out for us what Melchizedek's name means. It's formed from, from two words in Hebrew, which together mean king of righteousness. King of righteousness. He goes on to interpret the, the, the king's title for us. He's the king of Salem, and he tells us that means, in Hebrew, king of peace. Now, another reason that the author would translate Melchizedek's name for us is because, once again, he has Psalm 110 on the brain. Psalm 110 teaches us to link... Melchizedek with the coming Messiah. Therefore, 
that Melchizedek is a king of righteousness and king of peace indicates that Jesus is a king of righteousness and king of peace. If you're familiar with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, you know these things already. Jesus is a king who is perfectly righteous. He, he only does righteous works. That makes him utterly unique over the course of human history. We are unlike him in that way. Our unrighteousness, our sinfulness has created a chasm between us and God. Due to our sinfulness, we cannot be near to God. And further, we're, we're, we're under the wrath of God due to our sin. This situation, this separation from God because of our unrighteousness, this is the great problem of humanity. Alienation from God. And for Jesus to be a king of righteousness is, among other things, for Him, for him alone to, to have the inherent right to enjoy fellowship with the Father. The text indicates also that Jesus is a king of peace. And as we read the New Testament, we find that that Jesus has made peace between believers and God through the blood of His cross. His righteousness qualified Him to be substituted for us as a sufficient atonement on the cross for our sin. And upon His resurrection, He was proven victorious over sin and death and able to give life to everyone who repents and trusts in Him. So Melchizedek, king of righteousness and king of peace, he pictures Christ, the king of righteousness and king of peace. An implication of these things is that you need the eternal righteousness that only comes from this King Jesus. And you need the peace that only He can acquire for you. Only Jesus can help you to traverse this life and enter into the next life of God's eternal rest. So don't turn away from this Melchizedekian priest. It's just an implication of his naming or explaining the name of Melchizedek. The author then moves on to to other significant details in Genesis 14. Look with me at verse 3, Hebrews 7, 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, He continues a priest forever. Again, the the, the author, he, he reads Psalm 110, and he finds there that the Son is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And and he likely then reasoned, well, there must be something about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14 that sets up some kind of pattern for a perpetual priesthood. Now, if we were to open Genesis 14 back up, which Pastor Rick has already read for us, we would open this back up, we might conclude there isn't anything there to indicate a perpetual priesthood. And if we compare Hebrews 7.3 with Genesis, Genesis 14, we might conclude that the author is making what we would call an argument from silence. Genesis 14 doesn't say anything about where Melchizedek came from. doesn't say anything about his birth or his death. Nothing about his genealogy. And so let me be very clear about what I'm saying to you right now. Genesis 14 does not say Melchizedek had no mother, Melchizedek had no father, Melchizedek had no beginning or end. Rather, the text doesn't address those things at all. 
It is silent on those details. And so it may seem that the author of Hebrews is reasoning, ah, what the text doesn't say establishes a pattern resembling that the, that, that, that the, the Son of God will be an eternal priest who remains for all time. So we might then, reading Hebrews 7 and then reading Hebrews 14, we, we might say, you can't do that. You, you can't argue from silence. This is exactly why people shouldn't interpret the Bible like the biblical authors. You're going to have people arguing all kinds of nonsense uh, on this basis. Well, th- things like, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about peanut butter, so we must not be able to eat it. I mean, it'll be like the Wild West of biblical interpretation if we interpret the Bible like the biblical authors. Now, Arguing from tr- silence actually is a bad thing. But I would suggest to you that is not what the author of Hebrews is doing. He is not arguing from silence. He is arguing from comparison and contrast. He's arguing from comparison and contrast. Now, we, we, we've seen already, just in the first six chapters that we've been through, the author of Hebrews knows the Bible very well. And He cannot read any given Bible passage in isolation. He's a walking cross-reference. And so when he reads any passage, he has these these cross-reference synapses firing off, involuntarily making intratextual connections, involuntarily comparing and contrasting. Now, how do I know that he's doing that? Because I know people like that now. Modern, modern Mature believers do that when they read the Bible. The more you know the Bible, you can't help do that. You can't help but read every passage in the context of the rest. And so when he reads Genesis 14, he can't help but think, this is unusual in in comparison to all the other priest kings, priests and kings in the Bible. Now, why does he describe Melchizedek as without father? Because priests of God in the Old Testament are routinely mentioned as so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. That is, their dads. They're always mentioned. Here's some examples. And and these examples, they they, they all come from different passages in in the Bible. I didn't just find one passage and, 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 and copy and paste them all into my notes. These are from different passages in the Bible. Eleazar, the son of Aaron. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, the son of Phineas, the son of Eli, Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, Zadok, the son of Ahitub, Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, Zebud, the son of Nathan, Amariah, the son of Mariah, Yeshua, the son of Zadok, Merimoth, the son of Uriah. I could go on and on. This is, ju- this is just a, a smidgen of them. This happens over and over. And against that backdrop, the author of Hebrews reads Genesis 14 about a priest of God with no mention of a father. I mean, when you know the Bible, this jumps out like a sore thumb. This is weird for his father to not be mentioned. But also, the author says that Melchizedek is without mother. Now, why would that matter? Priests aren't mentioned with their mothers. Why would that be significant? Because the text has said that he is a king and his mother isn't mentioned. Read, read through, just you're taking notes, read, write down Kings, Chronicles, both of these books. You're going to find a ton of overlap between the two. But what you will find is that priests are always mentioned, their, their dad's name is always mentioned. Kings, their moms are. 
Their moms are mentioned over and over and over. So Melchizedek is a king-priest with no mention of father or mother. That is loud against the backdrop of the rest of the Old Testament. Now, why would he write without genealogy, having no beginning of days or end of life? Because he knows every other priest of Yahweh is established as such by virtue of genealogy. You could write down Numbers 16 and 17 for a great example showing how important it is for a priest to be descended specifically from Aaron. So these priests, they are meticulously traced down through the line just to show their, their legitimacy. Here, nothing is said of his genealogy, of the genealogy of Melchizedek. That's weird in the context of the rest of the Old Testament. Other priests of God Most High, they, they've got a genealogy. There's also this typical theme in the, the Old Testament regarding the death of priests. These things were marked because important things happened when a priest died. Just one example we looked at, I believe it was last week in Numbers chapter 35. You could read Numbers 35 as well. There in Numbers 35, we, we, we read that the manslayer was free to go home to his own city when what happened? When the high priest died. It's a significant thing to mark when a high priest dies. You've got a lot of people that get to go home. But, but, but here, nothing is, is said about, about this high priest dying. And, and, and over and over, the, the deaths of high priests are mentioned because you've got this endless succession of priests. So he says, no beginning, and no, no beginning of days and no end of life. That, that's simply an implication of his being mentioned of, of having no father, no mother, no genealogy. Against the backdrop of every other priest. If you read about Melchizedek, it's like he comes out of nowhere. And, and, and he's never replaced. I mean, there's no replacement mentioned anywhere in the rest of the Scriptures. That's weird. Compared to everyone else, he looks like a priest who has no beginning and no end. And when we understand that, we get that the author is not arguing, the author of Hebrews, he's not arguing from silence. He's reading the Bible in context. And so he's understanding it rightly, just the way that we should. Now, is the author saying that Melchizedek literally was never born, literally never died? He had, he had no mom or pop? Is that, is that what he's actually saying? No, he's saying that against the backdrop of a typical priesthood founded upon a genealogy and succession at death, Melchizedek looks like, and he's, he's been portrayed to look like something completely different, a priest with no successor, a perpetual priest. That's likely how the author of Hebrews understood Genesis 14 in light of Psalm 110. Now listen, if you want to hear a fabulous explanation of how the psalmist worked all this out about Melchizedek, get on our website and listen to Pastor John's sermon on Psalm 110. It gives a fantastic explanation of how the psalmist put these things together about Melchizedek so that he could say, I swear to you, you are a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the point of all of this is going to be that because Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus is a high priest who remains a priest for all time. And that means that He's better than the old priesthood. 
that this old priesthood where priests died and then they were replaced by a seemingly endless train of, of other priests. Jesus ever lives. The, the, the dead old priesthood is the contextual backdrop against which the superiority of the ever-living Christ shines. Why on earth would you leave life to go back to death? It's an implication here. Why would you leave life to go back to death? And this deduction that he makes comes from his reading the Bible rightly. What the the author of of Hebrews does here, this is something you can't pull off with Bible software. The, The only way that you can do what he does here, what he does rightly and what what we should do is to read the Bible over and over and over and meditate on it and compare it and contrast it between this passage and that passage and to do that over and over as if your faith depends upon it because he's arguing throughout this book that in a sense it does. Read the Bible this way because it feeds your faith. And, and, and think about this. If this connection between Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 and the, and the, and the coming of Christ, how, how he, he traces these things through, Genesis 14, Psalm 110, the coming of Christ. If, if all of these things are clear to those who know the Bible well, and if what the author of Hebrews has done in putting these things together, if this is accessible to one who knows the word well, then what other gems are there in this book indicating that Christ is God's yes to every promise he ever made? What might we be missing that the author of Hebrews didn't have time to write down for us? And this is not a matter of just learning the Bible more. This is a matter of pursuing Christ and growing in faith. The deeper we go into the Scriptures, rightly understood, the more reasons we have to say to ourselves, cling to Jesus. The more we'll conclude in our own private time, In the word, I must cling to Jesus, not the shadow. For me to do otherwise would be as foolish as building my house on a shadow rather than on the rock that casts the shadow. Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood is eternal. Secondly, he wants to teach us that Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to Abraham. It's superior to Abraham. So he's about to draw out from that Genesis 14 narrative what he finds particularly pertinent to the issue at hand. And in verse 4 is a call to examine the implications of something he's already mentioned, which is Abraham's paying a tenth to Melchizedek. So look at verse 4 with me. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So what, what, what does it mean? that Abraham paid a tenth to Melchizedek. It means that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And and the author hints at this just by calling Abraham the patriarch. Now, once again, the author knows his Bible very well. So he knows Abraham is not just your typical man, but he was the father of nations. And, And further, he knows that many, many times in the Old Testament... We, we have examples of fathers acting as representatives of their families. 
And he, and he could rattle off several examples, likely, of, of people cursed because of what their father did and people blessed because of what their father did. With one word, patriarch, he summarizes the concept that, that, that Abraham is not just Abraham. Abraham is a people. And there are ramifications of that. He indicates that, that if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, Melchizedek is greater than all who came from Abraham. And he begins with some helpful background in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So the law of Moses, that, that, that old covenant law, established by command this thing where the Levites, the Levitical priests, they, they are supported by the tithes of the people. And, and that takes place within within the house of Abraham because the tithe payers and the tithe receivers, they're all descended from Abraham. Okay? Verse 6. But this man, he's talking about Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So, so here we have one who is not from Abraham, who is not from Levi, who is not under the Mosaic Covenant, who receives a tithe from Abraham and blesses Abraham. And the author points out three things that are significant about that truth in verse 6. Three things, okay? The first comes in verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So he finds significance in who is blessed and who does the blessing. Why would he do that? Because he knows his Bible well. And he remembers that over and over in the Old Testament Scriptures, you have the superior blessing the inferior. You've got Isaac blessing Jacob in Genesis 27. You've got Jacob blessing his sons in Genesis 49. You've got Moses blessing the people, the tribes in, in Deuteronomy 33. And David blessing the people in his own household in 1 Chronicles 16. And example after example after example. And so he says, look, nobody would argue with this. The greater blesses the lesser. In the biblical world, that alone means that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. But it gives a second reason why verse 6 is significant. Verse, verse 8, look there with me. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Now he's finding significance in the longevity of the respective tithe receivers. The Levitical priests descended from Abraham, they die. In fact, right here in the text, it more literally calls them dying men. In Melchizedek's case, tithes are received by one who lives. Again, immortality is pictured by Melchizedek when read against the backdrop of all other God's priests in the Old Testament. The implication is that Melchizedek is better than the Levites. A third reason that verse 6 is significant comes in verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. In the loins of his ancestor. That's the same phrase that's used up in verse 5, but is translated, descended from Abraham. So he's using this, this phrase twice. In other words, Verse 5 is saying that the Levites were from Abraham's loins, just like all those who paid tithes to them. They, they, they all come from. And, and so 
the way that they conceive of, of this reality is, is very biological. The son comes from the seed of his father, and that has ramifications for life according, according to this culture. Abraham was a representative then of all who came from him. And, and, and when he paid a tithe, he paid a tithe to one greater than Melchizedek. So if Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham, that means that Melchizedek is greater than Levi who came from Abraham. And that is the real point here. That is the main thing being drawn out of this Genesis 14 meeting between Melchizedek and Abraham. The reason it matters is because Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek resembles Jesus. And that's one of the interesting things about the way this is, this is worded. He does not say that Jesus resembles Melchizedek. Melchizedek resembles Jesus. He points to Jesus. Melchizedek then is greater than Abraham. And Christ is all the more. Turn with me to to John chapter 8, please. John chapter 8. Before I begin reading in verse 51, let me give you a little bit of context. Did I say Genesis 8 or John 8? John 8? Okay. Got Genesis 14 on the brain. Sorry. John 8. In John 8, Jesus is having a conversation with with the Jews around him. And strikingly, the text mentions that many of the Jews believed in him. And it further indicates that what we're about to read is a conversation that Jesus had with those people, these people who believed in Jesus. And what we're going to find is that John 8 is one of the clearest indications that it is possible to have a brand of belief in Jesus that will not save you. It appears to be a brand of belief that merely accepts as true certain facts, but does not embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. Because these people who believed, as the text says, they try to kill Jesus at the end of the passage, which we'll see. Let's Let's begin reading in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. So this gives an indication that that the heat in this conversation didn't start in verse 51. They're saying, now we know that you have a demon. They've already accused him of other things before they get here. But now we know you have a demon. Abraham died. As did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make, yourselves out, you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, there are multiple things going on in this passage, multiple things. Not the least of which is that the language that Jesus uses here, before Abraham was born, I am. This is Old Testament language, meaning Jesus is claiming to be the I am. And that ultimately is why they pick up a stone to throw at him. They want to kill him because they believe that he's, he's blasphemed. But what is also significant about this is, is that it underscores the, the significance of, of the point being made by the author of Hebrews. Abraham is the greatest of the Jews. That's, that's why they bring him up in this argument. Here, look, Abraham, the greatest of us, he died. And, and they understand that, that for him to be superior to Abraham is for him to be superior to everyone coming from, from Abraham. A second thing that's significant about this is it's clear that Jesus does indeed hold that he is better than Abraham. And third, we find that, that to, to hold that Jesus is not better than Abraham and that Jesus is not God is to reject him. we further find that it is possible to, in a sense, believe in Jesus and hate Him. That is, not follow Him. It's quite possible. All you have to do is say, yes, the Bible says these facts about Jesus. I affirm that these things are true and I refuse to follow Him. We were to bring that situation and bring it into conversation with the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews would say to us, may God help the person saying that. I affirm who Jesus is, and I refuse to follow Him. Because here He has just given us more and more reason to believe that Jesus is better. Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. His priesthood is eternal. Just reason after reason after reason. Not just to believe facts about Jesus, but to cling to Him. Now, as we, as we begin to wind down here, I would suggest to you a few things to ponder as we spend a few moments in silence after I pray. But then things to ponder as we leave this place and as we interact with other people and as we interact with the Scriptures in the coming days. The first of those things is that once again, Jesus is shown to be better. He's, he's better than the other things that, that, that competed for the original recipient's attention, affections, and allegiance. And He is better than the other things competing for your attention, affections, and allegiance. Just, just, just look as, as, as this book has called the recipients to reject the idea of, of looking somewhere else other than to Jesus for hope and help. And as you look at that, consider that it says the same thing to you. Be warned the danger of looking to someone other than Jesus for hope and help. You have a high priest, a representative who even now is inside the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary. So said the, the author back in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 
He is your source of hope and help as you traverse the difficulties of this life because His being in the heavenly sanctuary is the very basis upon which you can draw near to God now and upon which you can draw near to God in eternity. And this high priest never dies. Trust in Him. Don't trust in your own understanding. Don't trust in the ways of the world. Don't trust in in, in political powers. Don't don't trust in, in social influence. Trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your living and eternal high priest. Second, consider how the author arrived at these truths. We have found that there is no interpretive voodoo here, nothing that's unattainable, just this author consistently reading deeply the Scriptures over and over. And what He mined for us from the Old Testament and how it strengthens our faith. In light of that, consider how important is your feeding on the Scriptures. The deeper that you go into the Word, the more you will find that will affirm the reality of the ministry and superiority of Christ and the more likely you will cling to Him with all your might. So cling to Jesus and as you're doing that, go to the Scriptures as did the author of Hebrews, feeding your faith on the Scripture's witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its clarity. We thank You that the more we read it, the more true it is to us. We believe it more and more. And we thank you that, Father, in the lives of those who trust Christ, reading the Bible causes them to love Jesus more and more, to trust Him more and more, because we find through every page of the Scriptures the affirmation that Jesus is your yes to every promise you ever made. So we pray, Lord, that you would grant us Go deep into the Scriptures that we might read it the way that the author of Hebrews has read it for us. We pray also that you would grant us to cling to the Lord Jesus, an ever-living high priest, a priest better than Abraham, better than Levi, and therefore better than every other thing we might turn to for, for understanding and hope and help. Pray, Father, that as we continue in the Scriptures and as we ruminate on the things that we've heard today, that it it would become clearer and clearer to us that Jesus is better, that we would desire to cling to Him, and that we would not be among those who affirm truths about Jesus, but refuse to follow Him. Lord, grant us to follow Him more and more all the time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.